Hello and welcome back to Relative Digressions. I'm Flick. I'm Renner. And this month's episode is... Battlefield, which is a Sylvester McCoy 7th Doctor story. So this is the opener of the final series of Doctor Who. Uh, It is the last appearance of Unit in the classic series. It's the last appearance also of the Brigadier. So this one is by Ben Aronovich, who had also written Remembrance of the Daleks, would go on to write some of the Virgin New Adventures and shape a fair bit of that kind of Cartmel Masterplan era Doctor, but he's probably famous to people these days as the best-selling Rivers of London author. Yeah, he's one of that stable of writers who wrote for the last period of Doctor Who, wrote for Virgin New Adventures, and then carved out a career beyond it, but sort of that their foundation was in Who. Yeah. We're really seeing a stable of writers working on the show who are still contemporary modern creators in a way that's actually not true of most of the writers we've talked about so far. Indeed, this episode felt to me more like a modern TV show. Yeah, I mean, I think this feels a lot like the stuff that we were watching on TV as we grew up, right? Right. Loath as I am to lead you towards the Demon Headmaster any more than I already have. So I, I this didn't remind me much of the Demon Headmaster. Uh, the demon who turns up in it actually reminds me of a lot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, he looks like he has wandered off the set of Buffy into Doctor Who. He almost doesn't quite fit in the rest of the episode. No, he really doesn't. He's not not in a bad way. It's just like, oh, there's a Buffy style demon here. Okay, cool. But also just in the way the plot is structured, this feels fresh. Yeah, one of the things that we talk about in the McCoy era is how, you know, it got cancelled just as it was really starting to pull itself together. And this is the start of season 26, where they've discovered things like foreshadowing and plot arcs and character building. The Doctor's costume changes here to signify that he's going to become a darker figure. There are foreshadowing references to Ghostlight and the Curse of Fenric. There is a series-long plot arc about Ace's history. Yeah, a bit we've done ever since the start of this podcast is to talk about what would it look like if this episode was transported into modern Who. But honestly, watching this one, I found that very hard because this feels like a modern Doctor Who episode. Yeah, the production values would be better, but otherwise... Sure, but actually the way the episode is constructed, the story this season is clearly preparing to tell about the Doctor. The fact, of course, they weren't writing this series as if they were going to be cancelled at the end of it, right? No. And so... So there's so much stuff here which begins to be introduced and I really feel very sad actually because I wanted to watch season 27 of Doctor Who. Of note, the plot arc here isn't, yes, we've got the Cartmel master plan, the the mysteries of the Doctor's past, but the actual plot arc is about Ace and people talk about how the companions are more important than the Doctor in New Doctor Who and Ace is the prototype for that. Right, it almost feels, uh, if I think back to the TV movie, almost the Seventh Doctor here feels more like a modern Doctor than the Eighth Doctor did in the TV movie. Yeah, when it was drawing the character of the Eighth Doctor in particular, it was done in an incredibly backward-looking way. Whereas when Cartmel was drawing up where the Seventh Doctor was going to go, he was going away from everything that had been done before. Right, exactly. There's a foundation being laid down here that is really clever. The show is thinking consciously about renewing itself. Yeah. Can't see it myself, all that patient scraping about. 
You know, I get the urge to bung half a kilo of TNT down the hole and bring it all up in one go. Now you're talking. The point of archaeology is to carefully recover the past, not disintegrate it. Wouldn't make much difference. The only half-decent thing Peter's ever found is that scabbard. So we kick off season 26 with... Well, actually, we quit, we, we kick off season 26 with a scene of the retired brigadier and his wife going around a garden centre. It's the least edifying season opening scene you can possibly imagine. Yes, although it sets the tone for what will follow in the episode. Yes, it, it may well be intentional because what we're going to see is the brigadier being drawn out of this pastoral life and into a world of old soldiers and legends because an archaeological dig has come close to uncovering Excalibur where it lays beneath a lake and as a result Morgane of the Fae, who is an other-dimensional sorceress, leads an army across with her son Mordred from another dimension with foristic intention <laughs> which clearly takes the form of the legends of king arthur yeah in that way that stories often do they're saying isn't he that the historical king arthur the legends come from this extra dimensional fey realm or i can't remember if it actually is given a name avalion like avalon but it's avalion Right, it clearly has a close link with this land. And actually one of the strengths, I think, of a lot of this is that there isn't like a big plot dump where they lay all of this out. No, well, what underpins the story, the driving force and the central mystery and the unique selling point of the story is that the origin of the Arthurian legends, which lie in the past for Morgane and Mordred and also the good knight Anselin, involve... Merlin, who may or may not be the Doctor, but the Doctor hasn't done it yet. So the Seventh Doctor is actually in the same position as us, the audience, which is we're realising that our Arthurian legends refer to a previous incursion of these other dimensional beings, which the Doctor was wrapped up in in the figure of Merlin. But we don't know exactly what happened. We only have the legends to go on. And that's true for the Doctor as well. And he's inferring things based on the fact that he has past experience of how his adventures have formed legends. Right, he sort of goes, okay, well, if, if I was Merlin, then these are the kind of things that I think that I would do. And therefore he manages to get stuff Done. And this is, I guess, again, one of the things that feels very modern in that this feels very much like a what would be nowadays called a timey-wimey style plot. Yeah. And that kind of language is not used at all here, but that is the kind of thing that Moffat loved doing. Morgane's plot here is to retrieve Excalibur and take it back to her universe. Because as in the actual legends of King Arthur, he is a threat to her that he may one day rise again. But the sword Excalibur is needed for him to do that. 
And Arthur, you know, although in our legends he is a human king, we were to infer from this that he is another one of these extra-dimensional beings, but who was a broadly a goodie. The interesting thing here, though, is that as is not uncommon for Seventh Doctor plots, and we talked about this a bit on The Happiness Patrol, it doesn't have a conventional climax. Because at the end of the story, what we discover is that Arthur was never going to return at all. He's dead and his body's decayed to dust. Indeed, and... And even the Doctor doesn't see this coming, but he finds a note in the helmet from his future self that says, actually, don't worry, Arthur's not coming back. By the way, Morgane's about to launch a nuclear missile. Indeed, and then the Doctor basically goes to Morgane and convinces her that because a theme that's been developed with her is that while she is sort of evil in a cackling sort of way, actually she has some honour. I don't think she is particularly evil or particularly cackling, really. I mean, she does summon like an evil demon. She is evil in the sense that, you know, she comes from a world that has a more objective light and dark and she is of the dark. Well, again, she she summoned a demon who is trying to kill the entire planet, which I, I feel like so you get a basic minimum level of cackle if you sort but of... But there are, there are codes and ways of doing things and she ascribes to them very firmly. Absolutely. And the doctor describes to her what a nuclear war will look like. And he says to her, you know, is that honour? Is that war? And she goes, you know, no, okay, it's not. Um, and she just sort of stands down. Indeed. And, and so Mordred and Morgane surrender to unit because basically... I mean, you sort of think she could get away at this point, but she can't get the vengeance or the protection against Arthur that she wanted. She can't get the retaliation against the people who've stopped her because almost our weapons of war are worse than anything she could have thought of. It's actually occurred to me that at one point, Morgane has summoned a demon called the Destroyer, who, if unleashed from his silver chains, will destroy the planet. And it feels really interesting how uh, it's just occurred to me that is the use of the destroyer meant to be analogous to the decision to unleash nuclear weapons. The destroyer is like a battery of ICBMs. It's made very clear that the decision to unleash him can't be undone. Yeah, I mean, so the, the Doctor, his original plan to stop Morgane revolves around the fact that he doesn't actually believe she'll retaliate. So when she frees the destroyer, he goes, oh no, I thought she was bluffing. Right, and so it feels like a, a sort of a failure of mutually assured destruction. And of course, this is, this is being made in 1989. Uh, meanwhile, incidentally, the Brigadier has been pulled into all of this, along with the new Brigadier, Winifred Bambera, who is... I mean, she, she happens to hold the rank of Brigadier, but also in a very... in a story role sense, she's being clearly set up to be the Brig. Yeah, this is a passing of the torch, and it is very much the swan song for the Brigadier. The Brigadier is really the hero of this story. He is explicitly likened to Earth's champion, and he is the one that saves the day, not the Doctor. Indeed, by uh, shooting the Destroyer with silver bullets, there's this wonderful line, the Destroyer says the Brigadier is pitiful, and asks if the Earth can do no better than him as his champion. But Lethbridge Stewart says, oh, he's not sure about that, but I just do the best I can. And then he shoots a demon in the face. And then he somehow survives. Yes, well, he was written to die at that point, but Ben Aranovich couldn't go through with it. Right, like he literally goes, oh, I'm alive. And you're like, not quite where I thought that was going thematically. Yeah. So let's talk about the Brigadier. Sure. We've now seen him... Well, we haven't actually seen his very first story, but we've seen him in The Invasion, which is when he becomes the Brigadier. We've seen him in the midst of his most famous, like, iconic period with Pertwee. 
We've seen him in The Five Doctors, and now we've seen him here right at the end of his story. Right. When he is passing the torch to someone who, I think it is no coincidence, is both not white and a woman. Yeah. The the show is consciously saying something about the way that the Brigadier is now kind of old-fashioned. They're not judging him for it, but also he is passing from the world. I think Bambera is, yes, she's very consciously not a white man. On the other hand, she resembles the kind of military conventional figure that the Brigadier was like in the invasion before he was sort of changed by his time with the Doctor. Indeed, there's a sense of which cycles are beginning to happen. Yes, no, I mean, I think that's very, very intentionally so, that when we see the Brigadier here, he is very consciously a man who has been shaped by his time with the Doctor, whereas Bambera is reminiscent of what the Brigadier was like before he was shaped, so we can see it's going to repeat, it's going to happen again. She feels like a modern British military establishment figure in the way that the Brig felt like a contemporary modern British establishment figure at the time he was created, if you see what I mean. This unit doesn't feel as real and grounded as the unit we've discussed previously. It doesn't have that sense of actuality and period, despite the Cold War implications that run through the story. And despite this story, perhaps better than any previous unit story, making unit multicultural with French and Eastern European officers. Right, so actually I was going to say that it, what it did actually feel to me was it felt like the United Nations Intelligence yeah. Task Force. Not actually just because there is clearly some diversity in the ranks, but actually more than that, there's something about the uniforms or the equipment they're using that feels very, I don't know, I I suppose my point is that, you know, I dimly remember things like UN peacekeeping forces and things like that. And there is something of the peacekeeping force about unit here in a way that feels less true both in modern unit and in the older stuff. When I say you and peacekeeping forces, you know, there's there's a lot of things to unpack in that kind of stuff. But it feels closest to that. And that's kind of what I mean about it feeling like unit was developing in a direction in this that I don't think the modern show really that's not what it wants unit to be. Sometimes I think it's not sure what it wants unit to be, actually. I, I don't think that the modern show really does understand what it thinks unit is. I mean of course Chibnall has jettisoned unit. It's weird that he did that as well, because he created Kate. Yeah, I wonder if partially it's because he felt that the modern show had got itself into a bit of a... It's got itself into a bit of a corner, I suppose, with with what its unit is. And he's sort of opening the possibility that he, or a future showrunner, could reintroduce unit, but give it more of a grounded purpose and an identity. Maybe. I don't know. You definitely get the sense, though, that that is exactly what Cartmel and JNT were doing here. Yes, because when was the last time that Unit seriously appeared in Doctor Who? So the last time they'd appeared was the Seeds of Doom in the Tom Baker era, and then we get a little glimpse of them when the Brig is picked up in The Five Doctors, and the Brig himself comes back in Modern Undead, but he's a retired school teacher and there's no Unit involvement. Right, and there's no there's no timeline issues there at all, so that's that's not well. Um, Absolutely no timeline issues abs- at all. It's fine. It's fine. Um, yeah. So that's the thing is that here they really are picking up a unit, a thing that's from like the peak era of the show, but they're not just playing nostalgia with it. They are, although they are absolutely doing that because, of course, Bessie is here. 
Oh, so that so that's true, but it's 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 very knowing, right? Yeah, it reminds me of Skyfall, not Spyfall, the Doctor Who episode, Skyfall, the James Bond movie. Why? Why in particular? Because Skyfall has specific back references. They get the Aston Martin from Goldfinger when they have to go on the run, but it's very much consciously building a new sense of how the Bond world works that is not remotely the Connery Bond world. And it, and it's nostalgic. He, he's in the Aston Martin with M, but it is nostalgic in a knowing way that is almost showing you these things one last time before they're gone. Well, I mean, in a literal sense, doesn't M die? Yes. And again, like the brig here, of course, as originally conceived, would have died, which is a strange thing to do after just giving him a wife and a happy married retirement. I mean, no, that's that's classic storytelling. I mean, like, it's surprising at some point he doesn't stop to show the doctor a picture of his grandchildren and say, <laughs> yeah. I'm, we're going to buy a boat. You know, that's, that's the level of... Um, so, uh, you know, I, I said it before, but I wish I'd seen more of this version of Unit. I don't think it would have all been good. I think some of it might have been bad. I think they probably would have got stuff wrong. But the, the point is, I wish the show had had time to make those mistakes, that it had been allowed to be what it could have been. I mean, almost everyone agrees, even people who don't particularly like the Sylvester McCoy era agree, that basically season 26 showed that they had completely got their act together, that Doctor Who going into the 90s was in the place to really come back on all guns and be something new and exciting, and and it ran into a brick wall and collapsed. I was just reminding myself that actually around about the same time, Walt Disney was just about to hit what's called the Disney Renaissance, where this, this is the period beyond where you get like The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, like the, the, the sort of really big... Mm. It sort of feels like the space was there for there to be a Doctor Who Renaissance... It wasn't allowed to happen because, broadly, the BBC didn't have enough patience. And, like, in fairness to them, not many people were watching the show. So, okay. Uh, well, this the first episode of Battlefield is the lowest-rated Doctor Who episode of all time, in, in terms of viewing figures. Yeah, I don't think anyone was really watching, and so, you know, maybe fair enough. But it's such a shame, because you know what? I think they were really... they really had something here. I do wonder what this unit would have been like though, because they are unabashedly the military. They have a war with Morgaine's army, and you see the aftermath of the war, and it's a slaughter. Everyone is dead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, They're transporting nuclear missiles. They have automatic rifles. When they have a battle, they kill everyone. So what would that have been like? This is not the rose-tinted, warm, cuddly... Yes, they blew up the Silurians, but nonetheless, you could be at home with the 70s unit. Well, one of the reasons it would have been interesting is that we are on the cusp of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War. And it's weird in some ways that, of course, there was no Doctor Who in the 90s, because the 90s was a time in which, in the West, especially in this country and in the US, you know, you had the end of the Cold War... But we hadn't yet seen September the 11th, the subsequent disastrous interventions uh, in the Middle East, uh, which have really changed conversations. You know, there was a space for, it, it was something to be clear, I don't support, but, you know, people could seriously make 
liberal interventionist arguments and there wasn't this big specter of Iraq and Afghanistan. Iraq and Afghanistan, especially Iraq. And it's interesting to reflect in the way that Doctor Who nowadays, obviously it doesn't directly touch on these issues, which are far too complicated and sensitive involve real people's lives it does though doesn't it danny pink fought in afghanistan right exactly so that's the thing i don't think it tells stories about them directly but they do shape it and it's interesting to think about what doctor who like how that would have been informed by the changing politics of the times that hope that existed with the rise of new labor in a sense it was actually it was the perfect time for it to be off the air because the Virgin New Adventures and then subsequently the Eighth Doctor novels and Big Finish were aimed at adults and didn't have to abide by BBC family entertainment. And they could look at this stuff in a much more adult lens. That's true, but I still... It would have been interesting to see. It would. Oh, absolutely. It would have been, yes. And, you know, you ask questions like, what does the Eighth Doctor... The eighth TV show Doctor looked like, if you see what I mean. Paul McGann is fantastic, but what does the replacement for Sylvester McCoy in the universe where Doctor Who kept being made look like? How do they make those choices? Because actually, presumably he wouldn't have stayed... If they'd made season 27 and season 28, he probably wouldn't have stayed much longer than, say, season 27 or 28, right? I think probably, like... Think Anthony Stewart Head in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Right, yeah, that's a good... There's that sort of notion that, you know, when some sort of ancient hero like King Arthur or Merlin is absent from the world, their kind of archetypes bubble up. You can very much see Giles as filling a sort of space in the psychogeography of schlocky sci-fi fantasy television. I was also thinking a little bit about this, about the way that that there is sort of that whole generation of people who just didn't have any Doctor Who. And that probably starts a bit before the end of the actual series because people just weren't watching it. Do you, do you have any sense for how long a period of people there exist who just didn't have a Doctor? No, I don't, because Tom Baker left such a shadow that they, they did. He he had a hat and a scarf right. and a teeth and curls and he fought Davros and the Daleks. And that was it. And, you know, even if you didn't watch Colin Baker or Sylvester McCoy or you grew up in the period after Sylvester McCoy up until 2005 you still had the spectre of Tom Baker in your head. Which is probably true for me, but I was just I, I was just checking if that was... I, I think that's probably a, a fairly common reality. Uh, if you had no Doctor experience, Tom Baker just kind of stepped in to that hole. And it's probably true now that David Tennant is that? Probably, yeah. When you hear references to Doctor Who, I feel like they often talk about a Doctor Who's very tenanty. A lot of people still see Tom Baker. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's true. But if the show gets cancelled, I think when people, as will inevitably happen, talk about bringing Doctor Who back, they will discuss things like, oh, well, we need someone like it was when we had Tenant because the show was very popular then. Now, I don't think actually that really understands exactly why the show was very popular then. But do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't. It's interesting, though, because when it came back in 2005, the conversation was about how we can't have someone like Pertwee or Tom Baker because they wouldn't fit into the new TV environment. True. What does the current TV environment look like, though? Well, well, what we're actually talking about is what does the TV environment look like in, you know, five to ten years time? So who, who right. knows? Who knows? Maybe it's time for William Hartnell 2.0. It probably won't be, but, you know, who knows? In, in, in what sense? Like an old... Like, like yeah, maybe maybe we'll be tired of fast pacey young athletic doctors and a cantankerous old grandpa telling people off it, it, is what the appetite will be. Well, I mean, we had 
Capaldi, who who was much more than that, but the point is... I mean, yeah, Capaldi, he was a bit like that. But that wasn't to do with the overall TV environment so much as a direct antidote to Matt Smith in the show. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. But when I think about the television that I watch now, there's no secret that although television in many ways has gone through a bit of a golden age period, stuff like Doctor Who, actually, just in general, is getting made less and less. Is it? I'm thinking of that wave that existed basically because of the success of New Who of shows like Primeval. Okay, but those were those were just literally attempts to copy Doctor Who. Well, no, okay, now we live in the era of Disney has decided to make TV shows, and so we live in the idea of all the TV shows being based on Marvel movies. <laughs> Indeed. I think one of the reasons it's really hard to characterise TV as it exists now is that it has become much more segmented and smaller, and mm. so that has changed the environment in which TV shows exist, such that I don't know really what Doctor Who is for at the moment, but especially will be for in five to ten years and where it will fit into that. Yeah, also, like, if you're at the end of the 80s, the 90s was a bit of a heyday for the culture on the show. Right. But in the late 80s, you couldn't have seen that coming. I don't, I don't want to imply too much that I think the show as it exists currently is, is a doom spiral. And actually, one of the reasons I really enjoyed, uh, as much as people in the fandom have not liked it, I, one of the reasons I like the Timeless Children and like some of the mythos elements that, that Chibnall is bringing in is because they feel like a conscious effort to think about where Doctor Who could go. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely think that he has a clear plan in his head. One of the things that I've considered is we might at some point get um, a form of Doctor Who which is like short series. But that's what Russell T. Davies was advocating for recently. Yeah, and I, I think when Russell T. Davies is kind of pondering a thing, we should ask him why he's pondering those things. To, in a sense, it's a mugs game because th there's always a thing that causes a sea change in the landscape that informs everything. So the the cult TV of the 90s that Cartmel actually kind of did predict a little bit, but was shaped by Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5 in a way that you wouldn't have naturally guessed in the 80s because Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5 didn't exist in the 80s to follow. Babylon 5 in particular really brought this idea of the myth arc into genre fiction yeah. and foreshadowing and that like shaped genre fiction through until Doctor Who came back because then you had the bad wolf stuff and what have you. Right, exactly. And again, Cartmel has sort of foreseen it here because we get four references. We get the bit where Morgane says to the Doctor, oh, I, I always could play chess better than you. And the Doctor goes, Chess? Who's playing chess? I'm playing poker, which is um, foreshadowing the curse of Fenric and the chess game. Right. And we get when Ace is mind controlled, she hurls racist epithets at Shu Young. That isn't casually done. That's because we find out that's like the worst thing in Ace's mind to say. So you said it's a mugs game because one can't predict the future. You're correct. But I think one thing one can do is sort of lay seeds in a way that I means you don't know exactly how they will come to fruition, but you know the seeds are there. And yeah. I think one of the big strengths of Doctor Who... We keep talking about how um, Doctor Who is a soap opera, and that's how you write a soap opera. Right, exactly. And, and Doctor Who has this amazingly adaptable way where it has so many elements to its myth-off 
controlling the ship of Doctor Who is a bit like controlling the TARDIS, right? There's lots of different like levers. Sometimes it looks very different from one another, but the basic principle is as long as you have enough little wiggly bits to flip, you'll be okay. And sometimes you just have to thump it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Incidentally, the TARDIS only appears briefly here in Shadow and then not again for the rest of the season because they accidentally burnt the set. Awkward. I mean, that can't have helped with getting it renewed, can it? I mean, it's like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oops, we destroyed the set. We need to rebuild the TARDIS set. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that doesn't, it doesn't help. Professor, why is it dark in here? Quiet, Ace. I'm working. Oh, is that why it's dark? <sighs> yes. What's that noise? Cry in the dark. So... The mythology of the show has been overshadowing this whole episode, but also this is an episode about mythology and it is a really thematically deep episode. It's got a sense of senescence. It's about age and things getting old. You know, there is a relic at the centre of this story and a legend at the centre of this story, but the characters themselves are sort of realising that they are relics and legends. This is why I think the use of Bessie is actually really good, because Bessie is, Mm. in a literal sense, a relic. It's an ancient, old-fashioned car. It is a relic of the Doctor's in-character previous life. It's a relic of the out-of-character era of the show. It's a synecdoche. Yeah, yeah. For this element of the thing. And then you see you have the brig. The brig is also doing what Bessie is doing, but with the added advantage that the brig is an old soldier and we already have sort of culturally, and and the brig literally quotes it, you know, old soldiers don't die, they just fade away. Yeah, one character who I would argue doesn't exemplify this is the Doctor. So the Doctor has a mythology here, but because actually the Doctor is encountering stuff that he will do in the future, there isn't a sense of senescence about him here. I, at least I didn't feel right. so. No, he he has work to do. Exactly, exactly. Which is interesting if you consider that he is Merlin, because one of the elements of Merlin from... Is that he ages backwards. backwards. Yes, exactly. Merlin ages backwards and here the doctor is it's like everybody else is getting older as the doctor is moving towards their past which he has yet to do and it's interesting because although they recognize the doctor i think they actually say at a different point that he has a different face right yes they drop that beat multiple times which taps into the mythological aspect multiple people recognize the doctor without ever having seen him before Right, because he he has some energy, some... The Brigadier recognises the Doctor without ever having met him in this incarnation before. So it's interesting, of course, because we know the Doctor does get younger. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know if that was a conscious thing that they were thinking about. There's a lot of timey-wimeyness in the Arthurian myths, actually. You know, the once and future, future king. king. Indeed, indeed. I mean, the Arthurian myths in general are are pretty fascinating, right? Yeah. In modern times, they almost feel a little overdone. There is the Disney version of them that is kind of in our minds, but actually they are fascinating legends. Uh, This is definitely much more the Britonic Arthur than the French Arthur. Although that said, Anselin and Bambera are clearly drawing a little kind of a little bit of a Guinevere Lancelot thing. Their romance is really quite adorable. Yes. Like, I can imagine Ansel as a a supporting character alongside Bombera. Yeah. It's funny how... I was just thinking how... I need to look something up. Um... 
God, what was it called? Um, was it called Ulysses 31? Ulysses! Yes, I love that show. Thank you. Sorry. So let me let me let me say. So I I'm aware, although I haven't seen, but given you just sung the theme tune at me when I mentioned it, <laughs> you have. There's a show. Called oh yeah, it's amazing. Have you show- not seen it? Oh, it's so good. There's a show called Ulysses 31, which is basically a French Japanese anime series, which is the which is the Greek so, myths of Odysseus. So and- <laughs> exactly. I've heard it's amazing. So the reason I mention it is because I feel an uncommon trope now, but which Doctor Who on TV I don't think has done lots of, is that thing where mythology stuff is happening in an alternate dimension, which is sort of past, future, advanced technology indistinguishable from magic sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, the knights here do just look like medieval knights because the production falls down. But the idea is that they are wearing futuristic armour that happens to look like a medieval knight. Oh, I had sort of got that. So it's funny, I could imagine a putative season 27 episode, which is the Seventh Doctor interacting with the Greek myths. Yeah. And actually, it's funny you mentioned the Greek myths, because one of Earth's myths is actually an adventure the Doctor had. It's a, a really old, old model of Doctor Who story that goes back to the Myth Makers, where the first Doctor lands in the Trojan Wars. Ah, fascinating. Because we were talking about the Doctor being Merlin. I could imagine the Doctor being... Clearly he's not, but you could imagine the Doctor being Odysseus. Right, I mean, the Greek myths have probably been explored more than the Arthurian myths within Doctor Who. Actually, it's interesting to reflect how much uh, the Doctor, especially in some of the New Who stuff where he's trying to refer- return to Gallifrey... That's very Odysseus, isn't it? And even in the Odyssey, when he gets home, it's not a happy reunion. There is a line right at the start of the Odyssey, like the first line, which is sometimes translated as the man of twists and turns. But the the phrase that's translated here is twists and turns. Emily Wilson translates it something as tell me about a complicated man. So I bring it up because it feels to me that that quality that Homer is ascribing to... God, we really are highbrow, lowbrow on this podcast, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) That quality... What I'm trying to arc around to saying is that this quality ascribed to Odysseus in the first line of the Odyssey feels like you could call the Doctor, and especially actually the Seventh Doctor, this sense of a a, a complicated, wound-up person who has all these... Yeah, there there is a complexity to the character which has not always existed. And when we talk about the cosmic chess master, the stuff that Cartmel was doing, it feels like we're playing on some of that stuff. And those are qualities that mythically Merlin represents or has. Yeah, but what is significantly different here to the other times that Doctor Who has done this, going back to the Myth Makers through the Underwater Menace, the Time Monster is that in all of those stories, it's a bit like the Doctor starting the fire at Pudding Lane in The Visitation. It's kind of like, oh, we've accidentally created this myth. Whereas here, it's not like the Doctor has had a sci-fi adventure that people will spin as a myth. It's like the Doctor is inhabiting myth. It still is myth within the context of this story. And maybe when it happens to the Doctor, it will be more like that more familiar thing. No, 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 no. But that's to say, I think that that's not the case. That what Cartmel is setting up is that the Seventh Doctor is entering a mythic period where the rules of myth are the rules of the universe he is now within. Right, Roger. It's funny how it also reminded me of the thing that Time Lash does with the unseen Pertwee adventure and how the Doctor has become a kind of figure within the history of the world. 
And that is not the mythic mode, but it sort of feels like a precursor to it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't want to get too deep into my genesis of the Daleks waffle, but there's been this progression of the show itself becoming more mythological and then recognising that it is becoming mythological. Right. And now we've got this point where it's being written by people that understand what myth means in and of itself and ascribing that mode to the storytelling. Right. Also, there's a thematic connection between mythology and this sort of senescent age handing of the batons. If you want to tell a story about moving on, handing over roles, a framework of mythology is the place to do that. Yeah, I think you're right that switching into a mythic mode lets you tell a different kind of story. I think we've talked before a little, I can't remember if it was on or off the podcast, about how probably the peak of mythicness in New Who is Matt Smith. Yeah, actually, I would draw a slight line, though, that Smith is where the full-on apotheosis of the Doctor happens, but that is actually more in a religious mode, that the height of the mythic mode is the Time War. Ooh, that's interesting. Um... I mean, I don't think they can be as so easily separated. I suppose in that sense, the height of myth would be... I feel like the Time Lord Victorious and the, the events of Waters of Mars. Well, I mean, I'll, actually, I would say from my perspective that the height of mythic Doctor Who is the Virgin New Adventures. Right, sure. So actually, New Who is already beyond it. The New Adventures almost are the mythology of Doctor Who. I mean, if I say to you looms sure sure okay it's like a thing even within doctor who like many mythic (laughs) things it might have a basis in apostrophes reality but maybe it's not quite as it's told and yeah like the new adventures are the mythology of doctor who yeah Sure. And actually, it's interesting to reflect on how the fact that they are not any more inaccessible, but like there's a sense in which there's more of a chance for an oral tradition and a sort of a a retelling of them to exist. Yes. You now get YouTube videos being like, who was the other or whatever. Right, exactly. I don't know if there was a YouTube video which is like, what are looms anyway that's like an hour long, but... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guarantee that there is. Right, exactly. Like, I imagine there's several... Um, To bring this mythological bent back to sort of the unit discussion a bit, Mm -hmm. a bit like how the climax of the Happiness Patrol is almost an anti-climax. Morgane and the Doctor here with the the nuclear missile launch, again, is is a subverted climax, is an anti-climax. More stakes than the Happiness Patrol, yes, but no missile is ever launched, nothing is ever destroyed. In fact, there is far more death in the battles that happened in the middle of the story than anything that happens in the climax. What happens is almost that this mythological mode collides with the reality that underpins Bambera's military modern existence, that Morgane and the Doctor as these mythological figures waging a mythological war have reached a point where the Doctor goes, this is what a Cold War is, this is what a nuclear missile is, these are not things of mythology, these are not part of our war. And Morgane kind of goes, oh, you're right. And actually you can view that to some degree as being itself about a passing from the old to the new. Yes. Where you, I would argue to a degree, the Cold War itself has a mythology about it and a weight 
and tropes and things which Morgane is completely not playing with and we're seeing a sort of a tension here where one set of mythology is passing into a new modernist one. Uh, hmm. We, we've mythologized the Cold War now. Don't think that was true when this was made. I am not so sure. No, I, I think I think elements of it had already begun to be mythologized. Like, John le Carre had already wrote a bunch of his stuff. Yeah, sure, but it's not like we're talking about the Cold War and spycraft and future plans. Morgane's literally turned the key in a thing and we're talking about what a warhead will do to a planet, and that's not mythology. Well, hmm... I don't think it is, but it's a powerful... It's a fact, but I think the the fact and the narrative of things like Threads or that When the Wind Blows by Raymond Briggs, those, to a degree, have a... I mean, you're right that mythology is not quite the right word, but... I mean, Grave of the Fireflies had come out by this point. Right, so the point is that, like, people were justifiably afraid of nuclear weapons, but there is a whole set of tropes that are around what that fear was was like, if you see what I mean. And that feels that Morgane is ignorant of. Meh. I see, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that that mythology, modern mythology of nuclear war didn't exist at that point. I just don't think that that is what is at work in the climax. Sure. I think what's at work in the climax is the literal reality of warheads versus the mythologized idea of Warcraft and the battle of wits that Morgane and the Doctor are fighting, and he's saying this weapon is not a weapon as you understand it. It doesn't belong to our mode of engagement. Uh, so I, I, you know, I think I agree, but it's interesting to reflect how that must have felt in terms of that's almost what some of the arguments against nuclear weapons sounded like sometimes, right? Because they think there is a mythologized nuclear war where nuclear power is dark magic and well essentially what i'm saying is that if you put nuclear stuff into that modern mythological mode then the climax of this story wouldn't work because morgane would go this is the new magic (laughs) got you okay so that i absolutely buy and it doesn't do that but i suppose what i'm trying to say with that last point there was that there's almost a sense which sometimes people make arguments against nuclear weapons that end up sounding like conventional war is fine, but, you know, yes. they're a bit too far. And that's almost kind of what this story ends up saying, right? That's literally what this story ends up saying. Right. The literal line that the Doctor uses to convince Morgane to stand down is, is that honour? Is that war? And Morgane says no, and if it had been war, she would have carried on. Indeed. The Doctor is not making a pro-peace argument. He's not making a pacifist argument. He's simply saying, this is not the terms by which we understand to engage each other. Right. And that is quite a subtle, uh, not without some problems point, but it's it's quite a subtle point that's being made there, I think. Because it's worth noting, this Doctor is not afraid to go to war. Right, as I think we haven't seen yet, but we will see in the course of the no, season. No, he's, um, he's already blown up Scarrow at this point. Ah, right, okay, so yeah, fair enough. All over the world, fools are poised, ready to let death fly. Machines of death, Morgane, are screaming from above. A light brighter than the sun. Not a war between armies, nor a war between nations, but just death. Death gone mad! A child looks up into the sky. His eyes turn to cinders. 
No more tears. Only ashes. This is honor. This is war. But these are weaponry what use. Tell me. On this general subject of myth and mysteries about myth and mysteries and history, let's play a round of history or mystery. Which, to remind viewers who didn't listen to our last episode, <laughs> is uh, Flick has a slightly idiosyncratic uh, slash all-encompassing and absolutely correct vision of uh, what a historical is in Doctor Who. And I'm going to ask Flick, is this, by your definition, a historical? Um, what this makes me realise, and I kind of touched on it when we talked about what Genesis was last time, mm-hmm. is that it's a mythological I, I thought you might say this, actually. Which is to say, there are things that work like historicals, but they work on counterfactual histories, not actual histories. So like the history of King Arthur, which is not real history. Right. But is a counterfactual history, which you can do historical with in the same way. And with Genesis, I suppose that sort of imply, applies because it's not the history of our own world. Well, so with Genesis, it's not the history of King Arthur; it's the history of Doctor Who. Uh, ah, right. Of the, of the... which is developed enough at that point to be a counterfactual history. Got you. So, um, I'm adding a third category of mythological. A mythological is a historical that uses a counterfactual history rather than an actual history. So, so it's not it's not mystery; it's mystery. Mystery. Yeah, there we go. Mystery. Myth- yeah, I mean, I I made that joke like five minutes ago, so. You know, I mean, I've also that was going to be my pun. So yeah, you really—I mean, you—you you messed it up now. So one thing I want to talk about is Ace. Now you don't like Ace, am I right? I—I I don't mind her as much as I, I used to hate her. I used she used to be like my least favorite companion. Sure, I can't remember what you said about her when we talked about the Happiness Patrol. But could you talk a little bit about how she is here and why that kind of exemplifies? So the problem I have with Ace. There is a good side to Ace and there is a bad side to Ace. And the good side to Ace is the the more modern stuff they're doing with the companion role, the way they're making them important, the dramatic stuff surrounding the fact that she is a child with a traumatic past and the Doctor is going to help her explore the trauma of her childhood. And all of that's very interesting. What I don't like is that there's a real down-with-the-kids, well-wicked thing to her that I find deeply immature. I know I know exactly what you mean. There is a moment in Battlefield which sums it up for me, which is when she tells Xiao Young the story about blowing up part of her school with Jellignite. Yes. It's cool in the way it's like, oh, wicked, she blew up the school. And it's like, no, that's actually really just like, she should have been taken into care. And actually, it's almost more problematic because the fact that Ace should have been taken into care and had a traumatic past and did things she should never have done is part of her character. And then at the same time, they're like, isn't it cool that she makes explosives? Yeah, yeah it bugged me too when I was watching it. But like, it comes up in almost every episode. It's like a thing. Uh, what it is is very Beano or... Dennis the Menace. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a common thing that I think creatives wrestle with, where you're criticising a character, but you can't help but like the things that you're criticising about them. So that's like the Mad Men problem, where you write Don Draper as this terrible person, and it's a character examination of an awful person, except everybody thinks he's cool, so you end up making him cool. Right. It, but it isn't that. 
It's like different people deconstructing the problems with the idea of Ace, except that they are the people writing Ace in the same show. Well, but, but, but different writers, I suppose, which is... Yeah, but as I say, this stuff was all planned out as a block. Yeah, it is weird. It's weird. It is... Ace is weird, and I struggle with her. So, yeah, I don't mind Ace myself. But I, I think all of your criticisms are on the money. I don't mind it as much as I used to because I now have a lot more time for the really forward-thinking stuff that they were also doing with her. But 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 then parts of it are like nails on a blackboard to me. It's interesting to think about what an attempt to do something like this would look like in a modern companion. Well, a lot of Doctor Who writing has opined that basically all modern companions are doing Ace. Uh, yeah, that's... True to some degree, but I mean specifically if it tried to do a character who felt useful in this way, it wouldn't do a character who was well wicked in that way, because that feels like a particular sin that happened a lot in the 90s and late 80s, yeah. Maybe we're better at writing a little bit better. Partially that might be because if you were writing this in 1989, your teenage years was like the 60s? Yeah, exactly. But then the early teens in the late 80s Thought Ace was really cool. Right, so... So actually, maybe I'm just wrong. Yeah, maybe. That's to be said, even even as a child, I hated children's shows and thought they were very patronite. This might be a flick thing and just, just a flick thing. <laughs> right, yeah. This is actually a season where we explore your childhood. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're in the school corridor by now. And Mrs Parkinson asked me to put what she thinks is school plasticine back in the art room. So what did you do? I tossed it over my shoulder, like that. <laughs> Landed right in the middle of Class 1C's prize-winning pottery pig collection. And boom! <laughs> boom! So I watched this episode with my dad and my stepmom, who indulged me in it. Because they, they weren't that enthusiastic about it. My dad actually at first was quite grumpy about how bad some of the effects look. It does look bad. Like the production values let Battlefield down quite badly, I think. Apart from the Destroyer, who looks great. Indeed. But he actually got really into it. And my stepmom pretty much enjoyed it almost from the world go. They just had a lot of fun with it. So, you know, my dad watched... He remembers, as I said, like Trout and Pertree Baker, my stepmom, I, th I think just Pertree and Baker. But she has quite fond memories of it because, you know, it, for them, it's sort of childhood or adolescence. But, you know, they really they enjoyed the thing. I mean, I'm not sure they thought much about any of these mythological points. I think some of those were kind of lost. Hmm. But it was striking to me how much they were like, oh, yeah, this is actually quite a decent episode of TV. But they, which they weren't expecting it to be because their impression... <laughs> Of yeah. Doctor Who in this kind of era was that it was all bad. There have been a couple of times when I've been watching Doctor Who and my mum or dad has caught it. I'll, actually, not my mum, because I think my mum is just nonplussed by science fiction. There's been a couple of times when my dad's caught a bit and been like, huh, that wasn't bad. And it, like with this sort of slightly bemused surprise. In fact, the one time that my dad sat down and ended up watching an entire story through was Ghost Light, which is the next McCoy story after Battlefield. Right. And it's interesting... Because, you know, we were talking about the show's cancellation and people not watching a show is not actually an indication that they wouldn't enjoy it if they were watching it, if you see what I mean. And it reminded me of why I was keen for people to be exposed to Classic Who, because in their heads it's just kind of this bundle of 
Do you think that's true? I think that Moffat in particular actually made the classic series cool again. I think that's kind of true, but I do know a number of people who refuse to watch it. Do you think that if they did watch it, that they would actually change their mind? Um, yes. Even with story... Like, it's sort of an ongoing joke that I like Time Lash more than Genesis. And I sort of appreciate Yeah, I mean, there's it. a reason, though, that I wanted to do Time Lash, which is that I also like Time Lash. The difference is that I wanted to convince enfranchised Classic Who fans to watch Time Lash. Indeed, and I wouldn't show Time Lash to someone who thought all of Classic Who was bad, because it would only... <laughs> yes. But I think there's just a lot, a lot of good to be found in Classic Who in different ways. It's almost like it was a really good show that lasted for a quarter of a century. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think... Sometimes that has been... It's a bit like how... you We talked how you're a massive fan of the Muppets. The Muppets... Uh, no, like, we've got to stop, otherwise I'll do a Muppet podcast. Finish your thought, but I'm going to restrain my desire to respond. So one of the things that is really startling when you watch the Muppets... <laughs> flick, flick, hold it in, hold it in! <laughs> um, one of the really startling things when you watch the Muppets is how good it is. Like, I mean, obviously it's good. There's a reason it was massively successful. But, like, it, it has almost become now... Well, we we talked about this the other day, actually. I was talking to you about the Adam West 1960s Batman and right. how these days I think people don't realise it was meant to be silly and funny and campy and they think that it was rubbish because they don't realise it knew what it was doing. Right, exactly. And so, to conclude my point about my parents... It was just an interesting experience to watch that with them. And this was an interesting episode to do because it, by its nature, as the beginning of the end, is who that not a lot of people, as you say, have seen. That's a good point, actually. It's probably one of the least seen episodes of Doctor Who after The Feast of Stephen. Right. As, as we've discussed, The Feast of Stephen is probably the least, least seen episode of Doctor Who, but... Yeah, because as you say, the ratings at the time were not good. It's not a really important episode that I can imagine people going to watch. It was better than I remembered it, by the way. Yeah. I mean, um, I, like, I remembered it being a mixed bag, and I didn't remember it having the depth that it has. Yeah, I'm really glad that we watched it. So, yeah, I, I guess if I had a final message, it's... I, I'm just really interested in experiences of people you might watch episodes with who aren't really invested much in Doctor Who and what they think. Those people who just, like most normal people, think of Doctor Who as that thing with the teeth and the curls. What business have you here on Earth, hmm? I'm here to tell you that these people are all under my protection. By who? Who? Uh -huh. By the Doctor. Who? Yes. Doctor who? Uh, exactly. Wait, what? No, not what? Who? Sorry, let me start over. Okay, well, we've probably dug into this as much as we can. Yeah. In general, interesting episode. Does some cool stuff. Next time, we're going to be just finishing off our master strand this season with a look at The Deadly Assassin, which I'm super excited for. Invariably, we're going to talk a lot more about mythology. Right, exactly. Yeah, I am pretty excited. Cool. So, I have been Renner. I've been Flick. And this has been Relative Digressions. The script for Battlefield's really good. It's a shame that the visuals... And like the performances too. It's just a shame that the visuals aren't quite there. If it had the visuals and the script and the performances, that would have been the Holy Grail. There you go, that was a pun. I thought we were done recording, Flick. I thought I was about to press stop on the recording. The Holy Grail has nothing to do with Battlefield, though, so it's not a very good pun. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop recording now. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to Relative Digressions. You can find us on Twitter at WhoDigressions. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, and this is a production by Renna Robson and Felicia Parker. We'll be back in the future. <laughs>